Obviously, if this is your first time here, I'm the pastor at Encounter Church, and I'm glad you're here today. Uh, for those who come here regularly, uh, we missed you last week. Uh, my wife and I were out of town. Uh, we do that a couple times a year where we just kind of get away. Uh, one, to remind ourselves how much we like each other, um, because if you happen to have children in your life, you can um, easily forget how cool that person was when you first met them. And so it just reminds her that I'm cool and it reminds me how cool she is. And it's just one of those really healthy things. And it's also a good reminder because we come back all united and we're like, hey, you, you, you're going to leave one day. So this, this is going to stay. And you need to know that nothing formed against this is going to stand. All right. So if you were plotting and scheming or, you know, whatever, this is good. All right. And so you just kind of get to come back with that united force in front and say, we're going to outlast you. And our goal is to get rid of you in a healthy way. And we're going to stay. So um, thank you for uh, just, yeah, anyways, we, but. Even while being gone, we missed you guys, and I'm looking forward to jumping in today. Um, this is going to be kind of a kickstart to how we finish out our last four weeks here. I don't know if you know this. Um, if you're here for the first time, this is um, the fifth, and next week will be the fourth of our last time in this space because we're in the midst of a construction project. In about a month, we will be finished with the space, and around mid-July, we'll be transitioning into a beautiful space about a mile and a half away. So uh, this is kind of like, you know, hug the seat on your way out today is what I'm saying, because this is sentimental. You've got four weeks after you leave today to enjoy these plush chairs before we transition into our new space, and we're excited about that. And uh, kind of to set the stage, in the month of June, I want to really challenge us to see the world differently. And what we've been journeying through this past month, um, I want to set the stage for next month with today by uh, showing you something that maybe you've seen before, but if not, is an illusion. So if you want to focus on the image on the screen behind me, um, not this image, but the image of what's known as the Truxler effect, it's... In the center of this beautiful circle of dots is a cross, a little black cross. And I want you to stare at it for about 10 seconds. I apologize. For those who are at the back, you're probably not going to experience the effect because of some nerd reasons we won't get into. But for those who are sitting in this front, um, by now, you're probably starting to notice something, that as you've stared at that black dot, the colors and the circles have started to disappear. Especially for those who are in the center of the room, the more you stare at that, uh, the colors start to fade away. And what you're experiencing is known as the Troxler effect. It's, a, it's an optical illusion because of our brain's inability to focus on multiple things at once. That what you experience there is really the weakness of your peripheral vision. That you and I think we see everything in front of us at all times, but in reality, what we see at any given time is only a small speck about the size of our thumb right in front of us. And that kind of everything that you think you see around it is really your brain tricking you. And Troxler effect kind of illustrates that. What I love about this optical illusion is I think this optical illusion is a very fit illustration for something that you and I experience in life regularly. It's a dynamic that happens to us quite frequently and that many of us are probably not even aware it's there. And what I want to do today is unpack and unfold beyond the Troxler effect as an optical illusion and to look at something akin to the Troxler effect as a visual illustration of what can happen in our lives if we're not careful. 
And to do that, I want to take you to a story that maybe you've never read before. It's a story that's rooted in history thousands of years ago in a moment in a distant land that on the surface has nothing to do with your life and my life. In fact, where we find this story may make some of you uncomfortable because you're here today and you're here because you came with someone who looks better than you. And they're the reason you're here. And they asked you and you showed up. And, uh, and the idea of putting a lot of trust in stories in a book that's so old makes you a little uncomfortable. And here's the disclaimer I want to give you today, that we're going to be in a book that I'm not asking you to believe. We're going to look at a story that I'm not asking you to buy into everything around it. I just want you to lean into this story and look at it through, look at it as if it was a mirror into your own life. And so just to lean into it. It's found in the book of Genesis, which if you're familiar or you've been around um, religious services in the past, the book of Genesis is the first book in both the Jewish and Christian scriptures. It's the first of all of those. It's believed to be written by Moses. It uncounts in the book of Genesis. Genesis is literally, the, it's the word um, beginnings. It's how things started. It's the storyline of all of humanity and how God jump-started this thing we call life. And for many people, we get hung up in the book of Genesis because there's so many things that feel so foreign to us. And I'm going to skip all the parts that perhaps make you uncomfortable or perhaps you're not sure about. And I'm going to jump towards the end of the book because there's an, there's an arch to the book of Genesis that sets the stage for the rest of what we call um, the, the Christian Bible into the New Testament. You see, there's a man who, um, in the midst of the book of Genesis, arises as the hero. His name is Abraham, and he's considered by many to be the father of the three largest world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that the three major world religions trace their heritage either spiritually or genetically back to Abraham. And Abraham has a son who has a son who has a son. And that's the storyline I want to jump into today is Abraham's great-grandson. You see, Abraham's great-grandson, a, a guy named Joseph, that I introduced you to about a month ago, is this, has this incredible story, has this incredibly challenging life that in the midst of these struggles sets the stage for us to jump in and to observe a dynamic that maybe is happening in our own lives that we're not aware of. It's in Genesis 45, and if you have the Encounter Church app, you can go ahead and click on it, and you'll find that it's been preloaded for you. And if not, you can follow along behind the screen. And what I want to do is just read Genesis 1 through 4 and kind of set the stage and bring you up to speed on this guy named Joseph and his life. You see, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one when Joseph, no one was with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept, wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's house heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. So what you have here is this 
And even in these first few verses, even if you're not familiar with the story, the, you kind of start to pick up on some of the subtleties. Is Joseph, when he's a young kid, probably in his early teenage years, he has 10 older brothers, and he's the youngest, and he gets a special treatment from his father, Jacob, who's also named Israel. And, and Joseph's special tre- treatment starts to invoke the jealousy of the 10 older brothers to the point that they literally... Not just like figuratively, they literally fake his death and sell him into slavery. Like you think your older siblings are bad. This one, these 10 guys literally faked his death and sold him into slavery. Now he's a young kid and between that moment and this moment is about 25 years. That's why these brothers who are now present don't recognize him. 25 years have gone by. Because Joseph's story is he is sold into slavery. He's taken into a foreign land where he does not know their language. He does not understand their culture. And he finds himself working for a man named Potiphar, who's the kind of commander of Pharaoh's army. And this is a really influential guy. And Joseph finds himself kind of climbing the ranks and the ladder of slaves around Potiphar's world. But Joseph's good looking and Joseph is very, very well put together. And Joseph starts to attract Potiphar's wife's attention too. And then it turns into this awkward uh, attempted assault. And essentially she makes accusations and he flees from her, but the accusations stick because it's Potiphar's wife. Everyone believes her. And so what does this guy who's been sold into slavery, this young teenager find himself? He finds himself being thrown into prison. Shortly after getting into prison, a moment happens where some influential people show up and they begin to tell about the dreams that are starting to plague them. Joseph has this special gift. He understands dreams. He understands something going on and he interprets what they say and what they're seeing in their dreams and says, actually, this is God speaking to you and he's up to something and remember me. And these guys find themselves experiencing the very thing Joseph predicted. And guess what? They forget him. And he spends 13 years in prison for something he didn't do, forgotten and neglected. And then out of nowhere, that moment a decade ago comes to the mind of one of Pharaoh's associates and says, I remember a guy that helped me when I was having some dreams. What was his name? Jamie, George, Joseph. That's it, Joseph. He's, he was a prisoner. And Joseph's still in prison, and he comes out, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh is so caught off and blown away by the wisdom that Joseph has that he makes him second in command of the entire nation of Egypt. Now, imagine that's you. And the brothers that sold you into slavery have just come stepping into the room. They don't know it's you. And this moment, you are the most powerful person in the world. Only one man is more powerful than you. You could have them killed, and no one would even question why. You're Joseph. You're the wise one. You're the great one. You have Pharaoh's ring. You walk around as royalty. In verse 5, and now I'm going to pop a cap in all of your suckers' heads. 
you about to die. You remember me? Oh, wait, is that, that's, that's not how it goes. That's how it go with me, right? Oh, I'd be like, oh, I've been waiting for this day. Oh, man, I have, hold on a second, let me go get my notebook. I got a notebook that when I was in prison, I used to sketch ways that I would kill you and things I wanted to do to you. All right, let's just be real. We do that when somebody cuts us off in traffic, right? Oh, if I could get my, you know, like, and here's a guy who has all the power in the world, and what does he do? He says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What? Not guards arrest them, guards hit them, guards tie them so I can slap them around till my arm is tired. No, he says, hey, don't don't be upset. Guys, calm down, calm down. Listen, God sent me here to save you, right? He says, for two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. There's this kind of global food crisis happening at the moment, and that's why the brothers have shown up, because there's no food in their land. But because of Joseph and his wisdom, because of the way he's led Egypt, Egypt has a surplus of food. And he says, look, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant and on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And that's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Like that's not normal. When we read the Bible, I think we, 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 should, we should wrestle with what we see, to play this thing out in our heads. Normal people don't respond that way. Normal people get vengeance. Or they at least, if, they, if they're not going to get vengeance, they at least rub it in their face. And they send them away hungry. And they said, you should have thought about that that day you threw me in the pit and sold me as a slave. But Joseph does something fundamentally different than all of us would do. And the reason why is because Joseph is embodying something. Joseph was aware of something that oftentimes you and I are not. That Troxler effect that I alluded to, Joseph understood its power in his own life. He understood that if you focus on something, it starts to affect how you see everything else around it. And that's why he can stand in front of them, and they say slavery, and he says, no, no, no. You thought you were selling me into slavery, and God set me up to save you. Where they see slavery, he sees saving. Fundamentally different. And the reason why is because Joseph, his entire life, his entire life story, when you go back and you flip through the chapters, Leading up to this moment, what you see is a pattern of Joseph consistently focused on certain things. That even the story I told you a month ago about Joseph and Potiphar and his wife, it starts the chapter and ends the chapter with this simple statement that we can skip over or read over or assume is just something that the Bible would say. But I think it's, it came out of Joseph's 
focus. Because here's why. The reason Moses writes this story is because Joseph tells this story to his children and to their children's children. And their children's children's children keep telling the story of their great-great-great-grandfather Joseph and what he saw. And Moses writes this story down. And the beginning of both those chapters says, and God was with Joseph in prison and Pharaoh's and and Potiphar's home. And then after he gets thrown in the prison, it says, and God was with Joseph there too. See, I think Joseph walked into circumstances looking, focused on what God was up to and where God was working. Joseph walked into slavery saying, where is God with me? How is God with me? And because of that focal point, he saw the small moments that would happen. He saw the the favor that Potiphar gave him as a slave, as a nobody. In this culture, I shouldn't even be noticed. And this man, Potiphar, keeps promoting me. Surely that's God's favor. I don't look like them. I don't talk like them. I should be mistreated. They saw Jews, they saw shepherds as as dirty, cursed people. And yet this Egyptian is treating me with favor? I know why. This is God at work. Joseph had the the focus on what God was doing. And because he was focused on God's presence with him, he could notice the moments and the ways that God was, in fact, working. He He kept looking and he kept finding how God was at work. Joseph also had this other focal point that you see throughout his storyline, is Joseph is incredibly helpful. He's not why me pull out the violin and play self-pity songs. He's the best servant in Potiphar's house. He's like, I'm here to help. I'm here to to focus on others. He has this other-centered mindset. He goes into prison. If you were thrown into prison for something you didn't do, would you want to help someone else get out? No, you'd be like, you probably deserve what you got. I didn't. I'm not going to help you. Most of us, when we're in pain, we get incredibly selfish. And Joseph doesn't. He does the exact opposite. He helps these people. And so Joseph's entire life has been leaving and leading out of this focus of looking for God's presence with him and looking for how he can make a difference in the lives around him. And you just have to read Joseph's story without knowing how it ends to pick up on these patterns. And Joseph's demonstrating this pattern. Joseph's living this pattern out. And that's why he can stand in front of his brothers 25 years later and said, you sought to enslave me and God set it up for me to save you. You saw slavery. I saw saving. And that's what I was looking for. That's what I was focused on. That's what my attention was drawn to. When I was in seventh grade, my teacher noticed that I had math problems, and um, it was pre-algebra. So the first thought was that it's probably pre-algebra, because that's that point, if you remember, where math goes from numbers to letters. And you're like, this isn't math anymore. This is reading. You're like, what just happened? And everyone, the teacher's like, no, this is math. You're like, no, this is reading. And so the teacher noticed I was having problems and that I would stare at the board and I was squinting. And eventually she started to pick up, maybe it's not a math problem. Maybe this is an eye problem. And so I will never forget. It's like one of these, like, you know, where you got these childhood moments that just are burned in your brain. I remember sitting in that chair. I'm a seventh grader. 
And the guy's going, what looks better, one or two? And I'm like, they look the same. All right, three or four, which, which looks better? They look the same too. And I mean, they all look the same. But the, out of that really weird contraption attached to my face came a pair of glasses. And I remember getting the phone call that your glasses are ready because there was no overnight, you know, like we forge these things in a lab. These things got produced in the fires of Mordor and shipped somewhere across the world. And so you get them out and you put them on your head. And I remember doing this and it was like all the world came into focus. I mean, it was this incredible moment. I was like, oh my goodness, street signs aren't blurry. Things, things don't have glows around them. You know, it was like the whole world came into clarity, all because I put this on my head. And because I'm a bit of a science nerd, I became kind of like obsessed with like, how, how does that work? How does something like this change the way you see? And it's really out of this thing. You see, the way glasses work, that bad eyesight is a focus problem. I don't know if you know that, that what happens is that this is attached to these frames, and as light hits it, the light is refocused to a different point because bad eyesight is a focus problem. The light coming into your eye isn't focused clear enough, and it hits unfocused in the back of your retina, and then by the time it gets to your brain, you have a blurry image. And so what, what do glasses do? Glasses refocus the light coming into your eyes. Bad eyesight is a focal problem. And I believe that negative destructive habits, negative destructive thoughts that we find ourselves in life are a focus problem too. That because we miss the focus, because we are focused on the wrong things, what starts to happen is we start to live and react to a world that isn't exactly pleasant to be in. And that the same way that we can start to overcome this Troxler effect, the same way we can start to live out our lives like Joseph, because let's just be honest, don't you want to see the world the way Joseph sees the world? Don't you want to walk into your circumstances with this mindset instead of the woe is me, self-pity, focused on all the bad? Like, I want to learn to focus the way Joseph did. And I think the same way that I had these frames attached to my head and they intentionally refocused the light coming in, I think you and I can do the same thing with how we focus in our thought life. To, to start to fix our eyes on something else. Where I've seen this play out, um, I mean, it's, in fact, it's, this is the, like, this whole principle I'm talking about right now that we see Joseph living out is the reason Weight Watchers works. Hey, the secret of Weight Watchers is that you pay attention, you're focused on the amount of calories you're eating. And there is a direct correlation between the amount of calories you're eating and the weight that you have. If you focus in on the calories coming in and you start to pay attention to how you're burning those calories, eventually what happens is you start to lose weight. That's why it's called Weight Watchers. It's a focal thing. Focus on this. It's the whole reason Fitbits and Apple Watches and this whole self-actualized movement is occurring right now. This whole idea of monitoring how you sleep, you know, paying attention to how many steps you take. All of that at its core is an application of this principle that what you focus on is what you pay attention to and what you start to redirect your life towards. I mean, this is this, this principle played out. 
And in my own household, I've seen this play out with my little girl. Um, if there was this group, she would be a part of it, a Stuffed Animals Anonymous group. She would stand up and she'd say, hey, my name is Ella, and I've got an addiction to stuffed animals. Like straight up. I mean, my girl would, would be in there and, and she would be like, I, I've got an addiction. Because you walk into her bedroom and the addiction is very prominent. I mean, we've got this huge container and stuffed animals are starting to like fall out of it. I mean, like dirty, like, you know, dust mite, like havens, dirty stuffed animals. And you're like, girl, this thing, you got this thing when you were like three months old and it is more slobber and dust mites than it is fabric. She doesn't even remember it. And she's like, I don't want to get rid of it. And we're like, a couple, about a month and a half ago, we had to draw a line. We're like, look, no more stuffed animals coming in this house. We're getting rid of stuffed animals. You've got a problem, and we've got to fix it. <laughs> this is an intervention with a five-year-old, okay? So we're like, we're going to deal with this problem that you have because it's out of control. You understand? And, and, you know, and there's this, like, tendency to just, for me, I want to walk in the room, pour all them suckers into a huge trash bag, walk outside, and drop them in a container and be like, stuffed animal problem fixed. Now, what would happen if I did that is that 15 years later, my little girl would still be in counseling. She wouldn't have talked to me in the last 15 years, and we would have far bigger problems in life, and I recognize that. So that informed the way Jenny and I started to navigate the challenge. We realized, you know what? As parents, our job is not to pester our child. It's to prepare our child. Our job is not to remind our child of all the things that she falls short in. It's, it's our job to lead her into the way that God has made her. So it's about preparation. It's not about pestering. It's not about pointing out all the bad, even though there is a part of that reality. But a lot of it's about preparation. And I was like, this is a moment where we can teach her gratitude. Because this has been a key kind of conversation thing around our house is gratitude. We want you to be grateful. Calsies are grateful. We're grateful people. We celebrate gratitude. And so what we've been doing over the last month and a half is teaching her how to refocus. It's this glass illustration in life, we, we talk about gratitude and we say, hey, pumpkin, because I call her pumpkin, I'm like, I know you're really sad about the 15 stuffed animals that daddy is throwing away. Because she was. I mean, it was like grief level, okay? Like grief level, like the ugly cry grief level, you know what I mean? And we're like, okay, like let the emotions pass. And then we sit down, we say, hey, 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 boo, here's the thing. I also call her, but I'm realizing as I'm talking, I'm like, you're like, does that child have a name? Yes. Okay. And so I'm like, all right, sweetie. So we, um, we have this, this issue right here. You're focused on what you are losing. Don't you want to, like, we talk about being grateful. And she was like, how do I be grateful, daddy? I want to be grateful. How am I grateful? I mean, this is the moment. And I'm like, okay, love, here's how you do it. You being grateful, the way you're grateful is that you shift the way you think. Right now, you're focused on all the stuff you don't have. I want you to start thinking about all the stuff you still do. I want you to move your mind on all the things you don't have. Because right now, all you can think about is the animals you don't have. And I want you to think about all the animals you still do. Big bear, causey, red bear, blue bear. We're not very creative. What's our name? Okay. White bear. I mean, seriously not creative. 
And it's like, and she's like, oh yeah, big bear and white bear and blue bear. And when we're in grocery stores, like we're at Target, I don't know about you, but there is a stress level that, that happens when you take a child into um, a shopping trip if all they want to do is grab at things and all they're focused on is all the things they don't have. And so we use those as opportunities. Now we're like, look, here's what gratitude, remember what gratitude is? What is gratitude? Gratitude is focusing on what we, what we have, what we don't have. So what do we have in this cart? We have popsicles. What do we don't have? Well, I want that, but baby, what do you have? I have popsicles. That's our special treat. I have popsicles. Okay, well, let's focus on what we have. Hold the popsicles. Look at the popsicles. Think about those popsicles. Not about what you don't have. And it's this intentional refocusing, going from fixating on what I don't to focusing on what I do that's been at the core of our family conversation with her around gratitude. And, and I, as much as I would like to admit it, I'm at heart still very much a toddler. And that same lesson for her is a lesson for me too. Right, that I have to do the same thing. I have to focus my thoughts on what I have, not on what I don't have. That I have to be intentional about staring and thinking and reflecting. Right? So if you have a roommate, this can be a pattern that's really helpful for you. It's really easy when you have a roommate to, to think about all the things that annoy you. All the things they do that annoy you. And what this focus reframing looks like for you is that you begin to think about and focus on the things that you enjoy, not just annoy you. Like, what is it about this roommate situation that I enjoy? Because what you begin to focus in on starts to kind of set and it starts to define what's important, and it also starts to influence what you ignore to, to go to, to marriage, right? Um, been married today. Today's my anniversary. What, what? You can tell Jenny, congratulations. Yes. Um, actually, you can meet my wife and be like, way to go. And I'm like, yep. So this morning, for example, she's going to leave. And she's like, bye, babe, because she's part of the setup team. And I'm like, see you later, love. And she's walking out. And I'm like, I hate to see you go, but I love to watch you leave. And she's like, you're ridiculous, right? <laughs> In fact, she just, she doesn't even say anything. She just looks around the corner like, I married you 12 years ago. I did that to myself, right? And she goes to leave. But I'm intentional, right? I'm, we live in a day and an age in a culture where people are constantly presented with other alternatives of what to look at. Here's someone to stare at. We spend, if we're not careful, we can easily spend more time thinking about other people's spouses and looking at other men and women and what they have and miss what's going on in our own home, right? Just, just, just be real. You can do it from a smartphone, a computer, or your cubicle. And so when my wife is walking out the door and I'm like, girl, I hate to see you go, but I love to see you leave. That's me reminding myself of how fortunate I am after 12 years. I'm focused on what I have, not on what I don't. That when we start to focus, when we start to live in awareness of what is in front of us, we start to see it. We start to notice it. Joseph was looking for how is God's present present in my life, and he sees it. He's aware that it's there, and he starts to, to pick up on that pattern, and it, it's his life story for 25 years. And what looks profound in Genesis 45 has been happening all along in every single chapter of his life. 
And Jason Hodges, who's one of the pastors on staff, I love traveling with him. I'm a strong introvert. He's a strong extrovert. And when I walk into a room, I, I, like, I like understanding how people think. Jason walks into a room of strangers because we find ourselves there sometimes. And I know that like he walks into a room of strangers and they're just friends he hasn't met yet. And you get to know Jason, you'll agree with it. I walk into strangers and my first thought as when I walk into that room, is how many viable exit paths can I have that can get me out of that space within a minute flat? All right? Just like I, I'm a strong introvert. I walk in a room. I got exit plans, right? When we leave a room together, he doesn't need to ask which way out because I know which way out. But where I walk into a room of strangers and I leave with a room of strangers, he walks into a room of strangers and leaves a room of friends. You know why? It's one of the things I respect about him. He walks into a room focused, and his focus is that these are people that I haven't met yet, and they're friends that I haven't made yet. And you know what he finds every single time? Every time we travel, when we walk out of a room together, people are like, bye, Jason. See you later, Jason. And he's like, oh, yeah, I met that guy. Oh, I know his life story. I know everything about him. And I mean, like, he's got friends when he walks out of a room, and it's because his focus when he steps into the room is these are just friends I haven't met yet. And so he's invited into it. You know what a guy who walks into a room looking for escape finds? He's just waiting for the escape. So he leaves the room the same way he found it, a group of strangers. Because this focus thing, this principle, even if you're not sure you buy the Bible or you believe in Christianity, this principle has been hardwired into us as humans by our creator. And even if you don't believe in a creator and you want to ascribe it to evolution, that's okay. But the reality is, is that principle's at play. That what we focus on, what we focus on, eventually becomes our future. And if you notice in how Joseph concludes this conversation, verse 9, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herd and all you have. And I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still yet to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become desolate. That Joseph's focus, or this foundational belief that God is for me, God is with me, I am looking for his hand at work when I walk into circumstance literally created a future that provided and fed for a family for generations to come. You see, your focus eventually starts to shape your future. And that's the power of this principle at play, that what we focus in on is not just what we see, it's what we start to, to, to live out and what we start to experience, and our focus will eventually become our future. And I would just ask you, as we, as we wrap up, what are you focused on right now? What's consuming your thoughts? What's consuming your world? I, I'm not talking about like, oh, if you're not focused on the problem in front of you, that it won't happen. That's not what I'm saying. But what is your focus, focal point? What, what are you fixed on? What, when you walk into your struggle right now, where are your eyes looking? What are you looking at? That this idea of focus doesn't just apply to our eyesight. It also applies to the way we think. That word's used interchangeably because oftentimes what we look at is what we think about. 
And what we think about is what we look at. And so this powerful dynamics at play. I told you today is my anniversary. A few years ago, um, right after we had Ella, I planned this special anniversary. I took Jenny back to the place where um, we met, where, where I proposed to her. And I, I took piano lessons. And I learned to play a song. And we walk in, you know, and it's like, because she just, she's just had Ella at this point, And I recognized, because we'd seen this play out in our families, um, that, that that stage of going into parenting, that if we're not careful, can lead at the end, couples come out of it, and they find they're just, they're cohabitating together. But their marriage isn't vibrant. It's not alive. It's not rich. It's not full. It's just that they've become roommates. They cohabitate. And I was like, man, this is, we got to set the stage for this next chapter. And so I go and learn a country song because sometimes a country song is the only way to say it, right? There's a reason country is one of the biggest genres. Even if you think it's twangy, sometimes it says it in a way that's simple and clear. And, and so I learned um, how to play a country song on piano. And it was a Brad Paisley song called Then. And if you've never heard it, it's okay, but it's, it's an incredible song. And what it does is it basically unpacks, and the whole storyline of the song is essentially like, when I first met you, you know, I, I, it's like, I couldn't imagine ever loving you more, but that was then. And then it's like, and I can just see you with a baby on the way. And I can just see you when our hair is turning gray. What I can't see is how I'm ever going to love you more. And he goes, but I said that before. Right? And he's like, now you're my whole life. Now you're my whole world. And this is whole like big movement about, but I thought I knew what love. I thought I loved you, but that was then. I love you so much more now. And I learned that song because I wanted her to know, like, woman, you are my wife. And I said yes to you almost uh, like eight years ago, and I'm still saying yes today. And when it's 18 years, I'm, my yes is going to be even louder because I believe that the best is still yet to come in this relationship, that our best, most beautiful, our most richest relationship years are ahead of us because I thought I loved you when I said yes to that date Actually, it was reversed because I said yes. She said yes, not me, because that girl would not have asked me out. But then we say yes to the marriage thing. And it's like, as the years have gone by, I've just grown in my love for her. And I just want, I'm like, and it had nothing to do with me being sentimental. It had everything with me to do about us saying, this is our focus. In this next season, as this child shows up and starts to become a black hole that sucks all of our attention and all of our money and all of our time away from us, Right? That I will not let us suck our relationship to. Because I'm going to love you more even then. And it was this statement of faith. And the reason this matters is because some of us are in the process and are in struggles and are in journeys where we're focused on something right now. And it is creating a future in our lives that is going to destroy us. And what are you focused on? What's consuming your vision? Is it what you want in life? For those who are Christians in this room, this idea gets brought up in the New Testament frequently. It's, you see it through things like um, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, right? The, 
Or Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he talks about renewing your mind. There's this constant bringing up in the New Testament about focusing and fixing and thinking about Jesus. Because when you start to focus on something, it starts to become your future. And just like that illustration and that illusion, when you focus on the cross and his love for you, it starts to put other things Those other things, no matter how dark, no matter how big, no matter how strong, no matter how uncertain, no matter how hard, no matter how crazy, it puts all of those things in perspective as they start to fade away to the one dominant frame of your life that God loves you, that God is for you, and that God is with you. And I recognize that I have probably created more itches today than I have scratched Right, the cool country song thing coming back to play here. But that's why I want to invite you back through June. Because we're going to unpack what does it look like to begin to reframe, to refocus how we think about relationships, how we think about family, how we think about faith and religion, and how we think about our future in general. And so I want to invite you back through the month of June as we finish up our last four weeks here. But for some of us, I want to create this space like we do every single week where the band's going to come and lead us in a song, and in the midst of that song, help to set a focal point in a frame. So I just want to pray over us as they come. And the song today is Good, Good Father. And it's just this reminder about God's heart and God's love for you that is meant to be the focal point for those who are Christians and what consumes how we think and how we live our lives and what we focus in on in the midst of our struggles and our trials and all the different challenges that we may face. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are worth fixing our eyes and our mind and our thoughts on. I pray that you would, um, that even as we sing and even as we reflect um, through this song, that you would help to shift our focus. Maybe shift our focus off of our work situation, off our focus off of our health situation. Not that those things don't become that they're still not important, but God, that they're not the most important. That we would see our lives in light of the future that we desire to have, in light of the love that you have for us, in light of who we want to become. And so thank you for the power that you've given us to focus, to focus our thoughts, to focus our attention. And thank you for this principle that allows us to walk through difficult circumstances and not just to be, uh, not to come out on the other side as victims, but to come out on the other side of it victorious, even if it didn't go our way. And so encourage us, strengthen us, uh, challenge us, shape us, and focus us. In Jesus' name, amen.